You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning, Foothills Church. I am so excited to be here and uh, just incredible to see what God has been doing here at Foothills Church, and I am excited to be able to be uh, just a part of that, of what God has already begun doing. I'm going to start by asking a question. How many people here this morning started coming to Foothills this year, in 2014? How many people started coming this year? Okay. How many people started coming this month? This month. Okay. How many people, this is your first Sunday morning? Just, okay. Well, I'm sorry to you guys that uh, you're bad luck. You came the first Sunday that I'm here. So uh, come back. Greg and Trent are great, and uh, you will enjoy them. But no, I am uh, excited to be a part of what God's doing here at Foothills. And I'll tell you, I'm also excited to be back in the south. Um, I've been, as you saw, up north. And uh, something, just to give you a context for where I've been, uh, first off, they don't serve sweet tea in <laughs> Illinois. Uh, and secondly, they don't have Chick-fil-A. So I know that's hard to believe. I know you probably thought that was only places like North Korea and Afghanistan, but uh, it's actually true. And so God is blessing me in many ways uh, coming here to be part of what he's doing at Foothills. Uh, Well, I want this morning for us to turn in God's word to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as you're turning there, we're going to be looking at verses one through six. Uh, my wife is uh, going to be here, uh, so don't worry. She's, she's going to come down. She's uh, working on getting our house packed up and uh, getting all those things in order, but she'll be here next Sunday, and then we're excited to dive in together. We've got a little boy uh, who's almost three. His name is Judson, and uh, he's a lot of fun, and then we have a baby on the way. My wife is 15 weeks pregnant, so this Thanksgiving, uh, we're expecting another baby, so excited. <laughs> A lot of things going on right now in our lives. So please turn Ephesians chapter 4 as we read from God's word to us, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the chance that we have this morning to come and worship you. Thank you for, as we've already begun, worshiping, singing praises to your name. You are worthy of all praise And Father, we are thankful that you allow us to know you, to have a relationship with you. And Father, thank you that you have given us your word to to teach us how we're called to live, to experience the blessings of a life following you. And so Father, I pray that that in this time, this morning, that you would be our teacher through your word, that that you would use me to explain what you have written down. Uh, So Father, we pray that you'd be with this time. Bless us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, I want to look at several things in this chapter in Ephesians this morning, uh, and and the first thing that I want us to see uh, is that all of this happens, all that that Paul is writing about happens in the context of experiencing the incredible love of God. Uh, And so Paul is saying, in light of the love of God that you have experienced, there are certain things that are to be present in your life. And the first of those things is that we are called to live in a way that is worthy 
of our calling. Uh, and so this is in verse one. And literally Paul says to walk or live in a way that's worthy of your calling. Now, when you, when you look at a book like Ephesians, I wish I could unpack chapters one through three to see all the context for what we're seeing. But let me just give you a summary. What we have seen in the first three chapters of Ephesians is that God loves us. Do you believe that this morning? God loves us. And although all of us are separated from him because of our sin, we've turned away from him, he loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us in that helpless condition. And so he sends his son to come and live the life that we fail to live and then die the death that we deserve to die in our place. Not just so our sins can be forgiven, but so that we can be reconciled, so that we can have a relationship with God. And that's the life, and he talks about the blessings that God has has allowed us to experience the blessings of knowing him, of living in a relationship with him. And so he says, in light of that, that's your calling. God has called you out of death and into life. He's, He's called you to a life of loving and serving and knowing him. And Paul says, in light of that blessing and that calling of your salvation, you're to live in a way that is worthy of that calling. And and literally the word that is used here of worthy is of equal weight. And so in this time, if you would have gone to the market, you wouldn't have just taken your your things and run them across the scanner, right? You would have had a a weight. Uh, There would be a scale. And so if you wanted to buy, let's say, grain, they would have taken a certain amount of weight and put it on one side, and they would take the grain or whatever else you're buying on the other side, and you would equal out, and that would be how much you're paying. And so what Paul is saying is is our lives are to balance the scales with the blessings we've received. Now, now the blessings that you've received in salvation, right, if you've trusted Christ, the blessings that you've received, are those the small weight or large? Huge, right? Unbelievable. And so what Paul is saying is we're to live lives that show the weight. We're to live lives that are different because of what God has done in us. Uh, And so here's the question for us as we think about this. What does it mean to live a life that's worthy of our calling? It's worthy of the blessings that God has given us. Let me ask you a question. What is your salvation worth? What is it worth? And and, uh, when, how many of you all have sold something like a house or car or baseball cards, maybe a dead bird named Petey? Um, Okay, so dumb and dumber reference there. So if you... If you sell something, so right now in Illinois, we are selling our house. So if you know anybody who wants to move to Decatur, Illinois, let me know, right? Uh, But when we're selling your house, what do you do? You set a value on your house. And so ultimately, what is your house worth? What someone will pay for it, right? So we could go and we could say, you know what? I really like our house. It's a great house. I think I'm going to put a price tag of a million dollars. On our house, right? That doesn't mean our, the value of our, ultimately our house is worth whatever somebody is willing to pay for our house and anything else that you're selling. That's the value of something is what someone is willing to pay for your house. And so ultimately, if, if we're looking at the value or worth of our salvation as Christians, we have to say, what, 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 based on our lives, What are we giving, right? What is the value of our salvation? How is it affecting our lives? 
right? Is, is, is there great cost in some way? Is, is it changing the way we relate to people? Is it changing the way we love people? Is it changing the way we spend our time and our money, right? Are we giving based on the way we're spending our life? Are, are we giving our salvation the right value that it deserves? Are we giving it the right weight that we should be giving it? Martin Luther says, a faith that gives nothing and costs nothing and suffers nothing is worth nothing, right? So, so that's the question I have to ask myself this morning. Is, is based on, because all of us would say salvation is great and we're so thankful for what God has done for us in Christ. But as I evaluate my life, right, am I living worthy of what God has done for me? Is it making enough of a difference to show the value of what God has done in my life? Uh, well, it's interesting here that when Paul writes this, when he's writing to people to, to live a life worthy of their calling, where is he writing from? Jail, prison, right? So why is that important? Well, it's important because he's saying in his own life, he is so overwhelmed at God's love for him, at the grace of God that has been shown for him, that he values his salvation. He values the call of God on his life so highly that it is worth going to jail, right? It's, it's worth the fact that he had been beaten and that he was hungry and he was uncomfortable. And as he sits in that context, He's saying to the people he's writing to and to us today in our seats, it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth anything that you give up to serve and follow Jesus, right? He's not writing this on the back end like after he had got out of prison and now he's back at home sitting on his comfy couch drinking Diet Coke, right? Saying, yeah, that was totally worth it. No, in the midst of the pain, he's saying, I promise you guys, the experience of knowing God's love, of experiencing his presence, of knowing that my life has a purpose, that I'm doing what God has called me to do. It is worth the sacrifice that I'm giving. It's, it's worthy walking. And so the question is, is that the case in our life? Now, uh, I, uh, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but has anyone ever in here ever had a very overweight sports coach? Right? I've had a couple, right, the elastic shorts, you know, guy on the, and so what happens when you've got a guy who's, who's that, and, he, and he's on the sidelines, right, got like ketchup in his mustache uh, from the hot dog he slammed right before he came to practice, and he's yelling at you like, run out there, <laughs> you know, work hard, push it, and, and you're looking over on the sidelines going, okay, have you ever done any of this? And I've had a different kind of coach too. I had a coach one time that was a military guy and this guy was intense. Like he would throw stuff and he would get out there with us. And I mean, he was running. Uh, this guy had mental issues. He would hit people, kids with pads, right? He was in there with us, but we loved it. He motivated us, right? He was right there. We knew that he wasn't just overweight yelling at the sidelines for us. He was in there. He'd experienced this. He was part of the game. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm not just theoretically telling you from the sidelines, yeah, you guys need to live a life worthy of your calling. He's in the game. He's in prison. He's saying, absolutely, it is worth it what I'm calling you to do. So how do we do this 
practically, right? What, it, what does it look like to live a life that's worthy of the calling of God? Well, the first way that we'll see here is that we are to love in a way that maintains unity in our relationships. We are to love in a way that maintains unity in our relationships. Uh, so, so here's the first way. If, if you're asking yourself, am I living a life that's worthy of the blessings of God, the love of God, the salvation that I have received, the first way you know if you are is looking at your relationships. We, we all have relationships. And Paul is saying, in your relationships, you live worthy of the gospel by experiencing unity, oneness, right? Love for others. And so you are to live a life, first of all, in relationships, but secondly, in unity and love for one another. Now, now there's a difference between unity and uniformity, okay? Uniformity is boring, right? It's where everybody looks and thinks and acts exactly the same. And I am thankful that that's not the way things are here at Foothills, right? Just, I mean, I don't know all of you well, but there's diversity here. There's, there's different, and I'm glad. Like, I don't want everybody to be the same. And, and so what God has, has done is said, you don't have to be the same, but you have to be unified, right? So over your differences, in the midst of your differences, and in the New Testament, these churches had diversity. They had Jews and Gentiles, Right? They, had, they had people uh, who were wealthy, and they had people who were extremely poor. They had people who were from different nations, and, and all of these things coming together in these churches. And they became family. Why? Because for most of them, they got kicked out of their families for following Christ. And so they became family. And so that's what I, I, I am so excited about, and I long to see here at Foothills, is God bringing diverse, different people together in unity. Now, how is that, Paul, is, is that easy? If you look at history, would you say that it's easy for unity ex- to exist? I would say no, right? Even right now, if you look at the newspaper around the world, there's all kinds of, of wars and battles over different people, right? And, and we are not a, a unified people naturally. So, so how is it possible to have this kind of unity? Well, we have to have a focus that's bigger than our own personal preferences, okay? So, so if we are to have unity here, there has to be something that unites us that's bigger than what separates us. Uh, an example that I think should hit home here, uh, how many of you all are Tennessee Volunteer fans? <laughs> right. Most ever, so I've, I've been here like two days, and I've been to a restaurant and a store. And I cannot tell you the number of orange Tennessee shirts that I have seen, right? And when you go to a Tennessee football game, and you're in the stands, and, and Tennessee scores a touchdown, which they're scoring a lot more of these days. When that happens, what do you do to the people around you? I mean, you're high-fiving, you're hugging, right? All of a sudden, you become a family with everyone who's in that stadium. Why? Because you have a common focus. You're, you're excited. People you don't even know. People that don't even smell good. Right? You're giving hugs. Why? Because there's something that unifies you, that brings you together in spite of differences. 
Tell me this. Is Jesus bigger than a football team? Is, is the unity of God's spirit bringing us together larger than, than, a, than a football team in common? Absolutely. And that's, that's the key to this, right? That's how you have unity. Because if it's your preferences and, and your self-focus, you'll never be unified, right? Everyone will always have different ideas of the way things should be done. But if we're focused on Jesus, he's greater than all of our differences and he brings us unity. If we have Jesus in common, our differences shrink and we have unity. Now, now Paul says there's certain, in order to have this unity, in order to, to live in these kind of relationships of love and oneness, there's certain characteristics that you need to have in your life, right? And the first characteristic, this should make sense to us, if you want to have unity and oneness, is humility. Humility. This is easy for us, right? Absolutely not. It goes completely against the grain of the way we're at. Humility is, is placing others ahead of yourself, right? We are in a culture that says everything is about yourself, right? Self-esteem, self-confidence. That's, that's how we value people's worth. And what Paul is saying, and ultimately Jesus is saying to us, is no, we are to be people who are more focused on others than ourselves. Paul describes this in, in Philippians 2.3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Listen to this. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Ouch. More, more, other people more significant than yourselves. That's not easy. right? That goes against the grain of how we work but it's the way that we're called to live in unity. So that's the first thing. I love, by the way, I love Tim Keller's definition of, of humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? So humility is not thinking less of yourself. It doesn't mean that you have to tell yourself you're a terrible person, right? It doesn't mean that you just are, are completely silent and timid. That's not the point. What it means is you think of yourself less, it means that as you walk through life, you're thinking about other people around you. When, when you walk into foothills on Sunday morning, you're looking around and saying, how can I serve and bless other people? When you're, when you're going through your work or when you're at home with your wife or your husband or your kids, you're, you're thinking about how can I serve others? What can I do to, to bless and show God's love to other people? So humility is the first characteristic. The second is gentleness or meekness. Now, when we think of gentleness, sometimes we think of people who are timid, right, or just really quiet, and, and that's not the definition of, of gentleness or meekness in the Bible. The definition of gentleness in the Bible is strength under control. Th this term would actually refer to like a wild animal that's tame. It, it's, it's not that you take away the strength. You still have the strength, but it's controlled. Right? It's, it's driven by love and, and, and concern for others. And so it's, it's, a, it's a self controlled, regular pattern of behavior in your life, not, not timidity or lack of strength. The next characteristic is patience or long suffering. Okay, how many in here are microwave is too slow type people? Okay, yeah, thank you for your honesty. Appreciate that. Uh, 
So, so I am that. I'm totally that. So I will stand in front of a microwave, like, enraged at the fact that I have to wait two minutes for my popcorn to pop. I'm like, isn't there a faster way? Throughout history, people have had to build fires and, and take incredible times. And now I'm looking at a microwave, and yet I lack the patience to wait. And that's how we are. We, we as people lack patience. And, and the literal definition is that you have a long fuse. Anybody ever been, been called a short-fused person? Somebody who can fly off the handle? Right? The concept of what he's saying is that you are patient, you're long-suffering, you have a long fuse. You don't just explode over things that happen. And, and does this connect, let me ask, does, does, does having patience, does, does having a long fuse, does that connect to humility? Prideful people are not patient. Why? Because the world revolves around me. So you need to get on my schedule, right? It, it, pride naturally leads to impatience. And uh, when I was in high school, I used to caddy at a golf course in Louisville, Kentucky called Valhalla. Uh, this is a, a major course, PGA tournament. PGA Championship was there a couple years back. Tiger Woods won it. Um, and so I catted this course. People who come to this course play at courses all over the world. They're very wealthy people. And, and this is not across the board, but many of those people were, were incredibly prideful. And so you could never do anything well enough. You could never get the ball fast enough or give them a reading fast enough. Everything was constantly moving. And I, and I sat there. there. There was a couple times I sat there and I thought about this. Okay, you spend your life flying around the world, hitting a white ball over a mowed field, and yet your time is the most important thing in the world. Right? So, so hold on, but, but that's what you see when, when people, it doesn't matter, they're just convinced that, that they, their self-importance means that, that there's, there's just no reason that they should have to wait. And so pride leads to a lack of patience, but humility, on the other hand, leads to patience and long-suffering. And the final thing is that we're to accept one another or put up or bear with one another in love. Um, this is, this, is, this is also, a, all these are difficult. But what this is saying is Paul is, is telling you and telling me that if we live the kind of, in the kind of relationships, the kind of life that God is calling us to live, then we're going to have to put up with and bear with people who annoy and hurt us. Now, we naturally don't like that. We, we want friendships with people who are low maintenance, who think like us. We, we want to have people around us that make our life more comfortable, not less. And what he's saying is, he's saying, if you live in the kind of relationships that I'm calling you to live, you're going to have to put up with people who are different than you, who annoy you, people who are Alabama fans. I'm sorry. <laughs> These are the kind of relationships. And so we have to ask ourselves, if I don't have close relationships, people around me, that I have to bear with, put up with, right, in love, I need to evaluate. Am I, am I living in the kind of relationships that God is calling me to live? Now, why is that important? Um, I, 
I'll, this, is, this is a plug, right, right up front. I'm coming in here to do small groups, and I am super excited because I absolutely love small groups. I believe that small groups are the greatest way to grow in your relationship with God and one another, right? And I will probably be tracking you all down, encouraging you to get in small groups, not because it's my job, but because I believe it is absolutely the way to experience God's blessing in your life. Why? Because God is a relational God, right? God is three in one. He exists as community, and he creates us to experience community. He creates Adam, right? And he's got all these animals, and he's got a relationship with God in this beautiful world, and he says what? It's not good for man to be alone. And so he brings a person, and he brings a family, and then he creates the nation of Israel, and he creates the people of the church. He is a God who designs us to, to live in community, to experience relationships with one another. So join a small group. <laughs> You'll be hearing more about this uh, in the weeks to come. But, but this, when you're in small groups, that's really how you start dealing with it. How, how are you going to grow in these kind of things? Humility, patience, long-suffering. How do you grow in those? You have to be in relationships with people who push you. You don't become patient when you're by yourself all the time. You become patient as you work through relationships, right? The way we grow in maturity is in relationships, is we have to develop these things as people wear on us and other people encourage us, right? This is how we mature. God's got this thing rigged. And so as we experience community, that's how we grow in maturity, and that's how we develop these characteristics that God has called us to experience. Um, so the final point uh, is that, is that in, in light of the blessing and love of God that we have experienced. We are called to live a life that gives evidence to the truth we believe. To give li- live a life that gives evidence to the truth that we believe. Now, now first I want to say this. Unity is not at all costs. Christian unity is not at all. Paul is, is not telling you that you need to, to pursue unity at the cost of the truth of what God's word teaches. So, so it's not that you need to be uncertain about the things that you believe so that you can keep relationships with one another. Right? No, he's saying there is truth. And, and this whole passage in 4 through 6, he says there's one God, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. There is one way of salvation. And so our unity is not at the expense of truth. Right, but we unify around the truth. We, we teach clearly the doctrines of God's word. This is, this is where base camp, if you have not gone through base camp, I encourage everyone to, to go through base camp to, to see what, what are the doctrines, what are the beliefs of this church? Because it's extremely important that we, we unite under the doctrine. But, so unity does not mean uncertainty about truth, but unity is produced as we experience the truth of who God is. All right, and we've, we've said this a little bit. When you look through this passage, you, uh, you see the, peop- the per- three persons of the Trinity. In verse four, the Spirit. In verse five, Jesus, the Son. And in verse six, God, the Father. And so, so here's the point. God is the greatest expression of community and unity amidst diversity that could exist, right? There is three distinct persons related in one God. I'm not gonna go on and on about the Trinity, but this is who God is. And if this is the God whose spirit is filling us, who's at work in the church, it should be the greatest picture 
of unity amongst diversity in the world. The spirit of the God who is triune, who's three in one, indwells us and lives in us. He should create within us this unity amidst diversity. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we giving an accurate picture of who God is? The way that we relate to one another, the unity here at this church, are we giving the world around us an accurate picture of the God that we serve? Now, does anybody still have cameras? I think that most people now take pictures with their iPhone, right? And so everywhere you are, you pull out your iPhone, you snap a picture. Uh, Have you ever, have you ever, uh, so I was out last night on the lake uh, or beside the lake looking, and it was beautiful, right? The sun was setting. You can see that this is a beautiful place to live, right? It really, really is. And, And so you take a picture, right? You ever take a picture of something that's just incredible and then you get home and you look at it, you're like, man, that really didn't capture, right? Like a sunset or mountains. You're like, man, they were way bigger than that. So pictures sometimes don't, don't uh, contain the fullness that we want. But, but how many of you all, I know this is, this is going to be odd to our students in the room. How many of you all remember disposable cameras? Okay. Yeah. So, so disposable cameras. Now, my mother-in-law actually still buys disposable cameras. I think she is single-handedly keeping Kodak in business. But when you used to get a disposable camera, so if we were going on a trip, we would buy a disposable camera. And you would take it, and you'd take pictures of people and stuff you're looking at, and you get it home, and you take it to Walgreens or somewhere, and you get it processed. And then you go back, and you pick up the pictures. Anybody ever go pick up the pictures, and they were all blurry? Or they were like white lines? I mean, that is so frustrating. You go on this vacation, and, and these are your memories, and you get back, and the pictures are blurry, and they're terrible. I think what Paul is saying here is that our lives are to be a picture that portrays the beauty of the gospel. Our lives together in relationship are to give a picture of the glory and the love and the holiness of the God that we serve. And the question we have to ask ourselves is in our personal lives and in our lives together in relationship, are we giving an accurate picture of who God is? Are our lives and our love and our relationships and our humility and our patience, right? Are they giving the world around us a picture of who God is? Because I will tell you, we, we believe that God has called us to make disciples. That is his call. And if you go out and you are telling people about Jesus and yet they look at your relationships and they're no different than theirs, they're not going to be interested. They're just not. But if they see in your lives a difference, if they see the fact that you know the love of God and that love of God is reflected in in selfless and sacrificial love for others, they will want to know what's different. And so the question we all have to ask ourselves, are we giving an accurate picture of who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel? I want to close with a story of a small group um, on Thursday, I uh, sat down on the couch of a guy um, who I have come to know he and his wife very well over the past four years. Um, great couple who are just loving, servant-hearted people. And uh, his name's Clark. And I sat down on Clark's 
couch and uh, just we talked and laughed and um, prayed with him. Clark, uh, Clark has cancer, and uh, he he is now in stage three. And I've kind of watched over the past four years how this has progressed. And um, the doctors are telling him his bone marrow is pretty well gone. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of hope. But there's a difference in Clark, right? He's got a joy. And I want to tell you something else about Clark. Clark's part of a small group. And I have watched. Clark and, and his wife moved from Pennsylvania to Illinois. They didn't have family. They had a hard time kind of getting to know people in the church. And then they joined this small group. And over the past four years, they have become family. And, and so as Clark has been in the hospital, his entire small group has been there with him. And they have spent hours and hours praying together. And then recently, as the bills, the hospital bills stacked up, they took a collection together to help him pay for his bills. And I want to tell you that Clark's family and the nurses and doctors and the neighbors, they see in that small group the difference that the gospel makes. They see a worthy picture of the calling of God. And I, and I just want us, I want to ask, I mean, do we want that? Do we want to experience that? And what is it going to take for our lives to give an accurate picture of who God is in the gospel? That's my prayer. Uh, that's what we're going to work for and we're going to trust God to do. Uh, and so I'm so excited about the opportunity to have a small part in how God's going to do that here at Foothills. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Father, thank you for your love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That though we have failed you, you have been patient and loving and pursuing us. And by your grace, you have saved us. Father, if there is someone in this room this morning who does not know that love, that, that relationship with you, Father, I pray that they would see that there is hope in the gospel. That you desire that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. Father, I pray that they would see the hope of Christ dying for their sins on the cross. And that they would receive that and believe that. And Father, I pray for our relationships in this room. Father, I pray that even right now you would begin preparing small group leaders, bringing people into groups to relationships where they can live out the love of of the gospel towards one another. And Father, I pray that you would do that work because unless your spirit is work, everything we do is, is pointless. And so Father, I'm thankful for the blessing of serving you. I'm thankful for what you're doing in this church. Father, and I pray that you would continue to glorify your name in this place. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.